You are listening to the Backstage Pass podcast, hosted by Hannah Trigwell and brought to you by Tomo. The Backstage Pass podcast is a guide for upcoming artists and newcomers to the music industry. Each week, I speak to experts in different fields, and in this episode, I will be talking to Ashton Miranda about playing keys for huge acts like Anne-Marie and what it's like to be Ed Sheeran's musical director. Ashton Miranda, hello, how are you? I'm good, yeah, how are you? Good, I'm good, yes, I'm excited to speak to you. I know that you've done a lot of work with high-profile acts, probably not as high-profile as me, but we can talk about (laughs) it (laughs) Um, yeah, so you've been the a keys player for Ed Sheeran and musical director for Anne-Marie, among others, and it must be amazing to play, you know, shows to such massive crowds. The funny thing is, when you're when you're growing up, all you want to do is perform to the biggest crowd, and then when you start doing right. it and you get, to, you get to those massive crowds, like we did a, a 61-date stadium tour with Ed Sheeran supporting him with Anne-Marie, and it was incredible. Right. But by the end of it, I was like, oh, just get me back to like a room of like 500 people where I can see everyone's face. I can feel the energy in the room. So I had to kind of be like, oh, yeah. okay, I've got to the stadium, but now I kind of want to go back to those small venues again. But yeah, this is incredible. I can't lie. I've only played one arena before and that was in Portugal and it was amazing, but it, but I, I definitely felt a um, a distance between me and the audience, you know, with the barriers and stuff. And, and it definitely feels very different, doesn't it? I felt like I was waiting till the end of the song to know if they'd enjoyed it or not. Yeah, there's quite a, a bit of a disconnect, I think, from what you're doing to what they're hearing. But I mean, yeah. as long as they're as long as they're smiling, they're obviously enjoying it, right? So, but what's been your favourite gig so far? Wow, that's quite a big question. I mean, for various reasons. I mean, there's lots, but the one that kind of meant the most for me was. Um, I was in Amsterdam. We were on the tour with Ed. We were playing at like, the, one of the Amsterdam stadiums. I think it's like the Ajax football stadium. Um, and I went out a day early uh, to meet some friends and just kind of chill before the gig. I had a guy that flew in from New York, a guy that flew in from the UK to come and see the show. And I was really, really excited. Play, obviously oh, playing, wow. with Amor- playing with Anne-Marie. Um, and then uh, Ed messaged me literally that day and was like, do you, do you know Angels by Robbie Williams? And I was like, yeah, I've been playing that song for like 22 years. It was my karaoke song. It was a song I used to play on the piano all the time. As a teenager, Robbie was nice. like my absolute hero. I was like, yeah, cool. Yeah, why? He was like, well, we're going to play it tomorrow with Robbie at the stadium if you want. I was like, what? So, with Robbie? So, with Robbie, yeah. Whoa. So yeah, he, in the middle of his set, he kind of stopped and was like, well, I've got a, something special to do now. I'd like to introduce Ashton Miranda to the stage. And I kind of came out and I was like, this is sick. And then he was like, and I'd like to introduce Robbie Williams to the stage. And then we all did Angels. And I was like, this is, afterwards I had to like fight back tears because it was like, if you were, if I was to tell like 14 oh year old Ashton that in all these years time you were going to be doing that, it was pretty special. And it was just one song, you know, so it wasn't like a whole yeah. gig. But to me that was, it, it meant a lot because it was like just something I'd always wanted to do from the age of like 14 years old. And I kind of did it. Yeah. Um, you must have been like buzzing about that while it was happening, but also just kind of thinking, is this, it must have felt like a dream, did it? Yeah, the funny thing is they had me on like all the screens at the back quite a bit. And when I watched it back, I just have the biggest smile on my face, but also this look of disbelief, like, is <laughs> is this actually happening? Or am I going to wake up in a minute and be like, oh, that was yeah. a sick dream. So yeah, it was, yeah. It was, pretty, it was pretty mental. <laughs> You're a keys player 
And we were just talking about something in the background of your video, but then we said, let's let's save it for the podcast. Because I, okay. I said, is that a Rhodes back there? So tell us about that. I, I yeah, this things. is this is my 1970, I think I said eight early, but I think I'm going to correct myself, 1979 Fender Rhodes. Um, I've always wanted one oh, okay. and never, for some reason, never, never bought one. They're quite expensive. Um, yeah. And one day I was at my mate's house. The conversation was a bit boring. So I just pulled up eBay and was scrolling <laughs> through vintage keyboards. And my mate looked over my shoulder and was like, oh, my stepdad's got some keyboards in the garage. And I was like, oh, right, okay, obviously it's going to be maybe, I don't want to, want to name any names, but you know, like a, a rubbish kid's I know what you keyboard. Mean, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was like, oh, I can, I can ask him if you want what they are. And I was like, yeah, well, you may as well, thinking I'd never hear anything again and just thinking, yeah, whatever, it's going to be some piece of rubbish. And then literally that evening, he texted me. I went over to my stepdad's. It's something called a Fender Rhodes. Have you ever heard of that? I was like, called him up. I was like, right, where is this Fender Rhodes? I know exactly what that is. I'm coming over. And it literally is like a mile up the road from where I live. And this guy had had it from new. And it's been in his garage for the past 20 years, not being used. Whoa. So I got in the car, drove straight there, got it out. It needed a bit of TLC. It had not been used for such a long time. Um, and he sold yeah. it to me for a very cheap price because he was just excited that it was going to go to a home where it was going to be used. I had it. I used it wow. for a while. Um, yeah. And then kind of just sat there just looking pretty. And occasionally I'd come and touch it and do a few bits, but never really used it on any recordings. And then this year I... Right. Um, I recorded, uh, re-recorded the whole of Mabel's album, her uh, debut album called High Expectations with a, a business colleague of mine called Thomas Totten. And we did the, redid the whole album and released it for the year's anniversary. And we were like, we should get some roads on some of these tracks. And we were using some of the plugins. And I was like, it's just something that's not inspiring me about these plugins. There's something that doesn't feel real. That doesn't quite sound mm. right. And I'm, I'm not playing the right, the right kind of movements and like inversions. So I was like, right, let's mic this up. Let's get it through my Roland Jazz Chorus 120 and let's see what happens. And it just brought every track to life. And yeah, it just brought this rich, yeah, warm. And it kind of it kind of instructs you how to play it, if that makes sense. You know, obviously playing keyboards is, is great and the sounds are great for live. And But when you play that something that's yeah. like real vintage, analog, you know, it, it, it basically kind of played itself through me. So... Yes, yeah, brilliant. I love it. Take us through like a history of the kit that you've had. Uh, Where did you okay. start? What did you start with? I started with a Yamaha PSR 78. It was a 49 key keyboard with like funny drum beats and silly songs that my mum would press play and pretend to play. And I'm like, mum, I know you're not playing that. I know that song exists on that <laughs> did keyboard. Did it do that like... DJ did the DJ thing. No, I'm a bit older. So D- DJ, d- 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 DJ was not invented when I was playing. That came a okay. few years later. Fair enough. Um, but it was, it, it's along those lines. It wasn't touch sensitive. So every time you hit it, no matter how hard you hit it, it, it played the same velocity. Um, and then kind of was just uneducated and just kept using Yamaha because that was kind of what was in schools. You kind of go with what, what you're brought with. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah. then I started. Then I started upgrading to a company called Korg, um, who make great keyboards. Uh, I saw some of my idols were using them, like Robbie Williams, his keyboard player, always used a Korg. Herbie Hancock always used oh. a Korg. And then I had my first setup for for when I did Anne Marie. It was like a Korg SV1 and a Korg like Triton on the top, and it worked. It was cool. And then 
Roland got in contact and were like, we'd like you to come and test some of our keyboards. And I was like, oh my God, a keyboard company is asking me to come and test the keyboard. That's insane. Um, I was like, no, I, I really like Korg. You know, I'm happy to stick with Korg. Um, and they were like, no, we'd love you to come in. So I was like, do you know what? I'm going to come in. And I tried their keyboards and I've not looked back. <laughs> um, the action is incredible. So here I've got, I don't know if you can see it. This is my Roland Phantom 8 and I have a Roland Phantom 7 here. Ah, okay. Um, and the, just yeah. the action on it. I, when, as soon as I started playing it, I was like, oh, I feel at home. This feels so good. It feels so realistic, so responsive. Um, nice. And then I started playing with some of the sounds and I literally was just instantly converted. And I think my first full Roland rig was uh, the RD2000, which is their stage piano. Great piano sounds, good electric piano sounds, great, incredible feel. Um, I had a System 8, which is their plug-out synthesizer. It's got all like the Juno 106 and Jupiter 8 sounds in it. Um, and then I had oh. their workstation at the time, which is the FA07, which actually I used as a controller keyboard. And then when the Phantoms came out, they were like, do you want to come and test a Phantom? And I was like, yeah, I'll give it a go. And then now I literally just have two Phantoms in my rig. That's it. No, <laughs> no questions asked. Really? Nothing else? Nothing else. I won't even go to another manufacturer. I think they're just... They're just the number one. The team are brilliant. I'm, I'm a people person, so I believe that yep. the people I work with and represent have to be like great people, and every single person on their team is a great person. And of course, they just make killer products. They sound great. They feel great. They look great on stage. They do everything I need. Having this keyboard rig is the first time I've been able to take my laptop and just chuck it off the stage and not use it. I've always had a laptop in my rig to control. Oh, wow samples and sounds and set lists and whatnot and you know it it always went wrong there was always a time where something glitched or something went wrong and having these phantoms is you know it's literally just two pieces of hardware on stage i turn them on and they just go every single time so rave reviews rave reviews for roland yes yeah (laughs) and in terms of the musical direction stuff i mean that's a whole different ball game isn't it completely yeah i mean a lot of the acts i I work with, I actually don't even play for them. I just musical direct. What does that entail? So a musical director works with the artist and creates the sonics of the show. So the set list, the moments, make sure that there is, you know, you got highs, you've got lows, um, puts the band together, uh, works on the different parts that the band are going to play. Obviously with a lot of modern music now, there are so many layers to each song. So... You, it's all about, I get, I get sent the stems from like the producer of the song and all the multi-track stems and I go through and go, right, what's the drummer going to play? We get rid of that. What's the bass player going to play? Right. We get rid of that. What's the guitarist going to play? So on and so on. And then I build like a backing track around what the live musicians are going to play and that kind of comes out of a playback machine. Um, it entails like working on different covers for like live lounges or special like one-off performances. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very, very creative. Uh, and it's mm. quite nice to, I mean, I love playing, don't get me wrong. That's a passion of mine, but it's quite nice to stand up front and just listen sonically to the show that you've kind of put together with the team and the musicians and the artists. Yeah. I remember meeting, um, Dua Lipa's musical director. William Bauman. Yeah. He's a great right. guy. I like him. He was really intently listening and looking at things and, you know, just, just really in it. And I said, I asked him if he was her manager at the time, I think. And he said, right, no, okay. I'm the musical director. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> like surely 
she she's just playing the song and if you're not in the industry I'm not sure if that's very well like not documented but known about generally you know no I'd agree I'd agree I have to explain that to a lot of people all the time they're like you do what you don't play but what are you, what are you doing and I'm like well <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of like managing the band, if you will. You're like, you know, I remember being a kid and at school and you'd go into a practice room and everyone would have a load of ideas and you'd get nothing done. There needs to be the leader that goes, okay, yeah. I'm going to hear all of these ideas and this is what we're going to do. Then we're going to yeah. do this. You know, it's a lot about time management, stress management. Um, you know, you're up against it a lot in pop music. Sometimes the artist may want to change something a few hours before the show and it's like, right, okay, I've got to get on this and make sure that everybody knows what they're doing, make sure all the changes are made. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't think a lot of people do know what it is, but I, I love doing it. It's just a creative role that is, is quite rewarding. One of the questions I've had for a while about musical directing is, do you need to be able to read sheet music? I don't. So no. Right. Okay. (laughs) Um, Fair enough. I think it helps, but I think in, in pop music, pop music's kind of different to like classical music. In the sense, of, in the sense yeah. of like, even before I was a musical director, nobody sent me sheet music. They would send you the track, and you would listen to it, and you'd work out the parts by, by ear. By, by ear, yeah. it was all done by ear. Um, and let's yeah. be honest, you know, pop music is not the hardest genre of music most of the time. You know, a lot of the songs. <gasps> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, it feels good. It feels good to play, and I'm always, I'm always, I always say less is more. So, but you know, like it's yeah. just kind of like some of them are just four chords over and over again, and similar kind of structures. Verse, pre-chorus, verse, pre-chorus, middle eight, chorus, done. Um, although a lot of songs are not even having a middle eight anymore. They've kind of got rid of that, like it's a bit old school. Yeah, true. Um, which is yeah. upsets me because I love middle eights. It's that oh, part it of the song. It does me as well. I love oh. a middle eight. So at some point it's just going to be chorus, 20 second just, chorus and that's it. It's chorus and you're out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Can you imagine? <laughs> what is your track of the week? Wow. Track of, look at my face. I was like... <clears throat> What is my track <laughs> of the week? Um, of is it? Does it have to be like a modern song that's out at the moment, or is it like something no, I've been listening to? Just, okay, it can be yeah, something, yeah. right? <clears throat> okay, I'm I'm the biggest. Well, I say I'm the biggest, but I'm a massive Michael Jackson fan. He influences me in all of my live shows. Everything I do, I always ask the question, "What would Michael do?" And I think, "What would he do?" And then I put that in the show. So it's everything is very MJ influenced professionally. And literally a few weeks ago, I was at a party and a friend of, my, friend of mine was like, have you ever heard that, that song? It only came out, like, it got leaked a few, a few years ago. It was a Michael Jackson song that never made it um, onto, oh, yeah, yeah. onto the Off The Wall album. I was like, nah, I would have heard it. Don't be stupid. Of course I would have heard that song. It's Michael. And he played it to me and it's called Sunset Driver. And it was recorded like back in 1978 uh, for the release of Off The Wall. It was written by Michael Jackson obviously produced by Quincy Jones and and it never made it onto the album. And I listen to that without fail every single morning at the moment. It's be- slowly becoming one of my favorite Michael Jackson songs of all time. It was never released. And the demo wow. just, I mean, it, the demo sounds incredible. And I, and I always think like, if your demos sound that good, like, come on, man, you, you were just the king at that kind yeah. of stuff. So for the final question, what is the best lesson that you've learned so far in your career the best lesson that I've learned so far in my career would have to be don't just work on your craft as a musician work on yourself 
Um, you know, you can be the best musician in the world, but if you want to be a touring musician, you have to understand that you are on stage for a maximum of two hours a night. The rest of the time, you're mm-hmm. just you. Backstage, yeah. on a tour bus. So I just always say that to people, you know, work on your craft, but also just work on yourself as a person. Make sure you are punctual. Make sure you are polite. Make sure you've got a good energy. Make sure you're open-minded to other people's ideas and other people's, just just other people in general. And just just be that just that easygoing guy. Don't be a diva. Just be a nice person. It's all about nice, good people. So solid advice. Solid advice. Make sure you yeah. listen, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, solid advice. Well, it's been so great to speak to you. I just can't still imagine what it must have been like when Robbie came out and you played at Angels. But yeah, and I think you've got to. And on, oh, another piece of advice: visualize. I always say this to people: visualize yourself doing the things you want to do. Everything I've done in my career, mm. I've pre-planned out in my head. I've seen it time and time and time again. I always saw myself on stage with Robbie Williams. So, and it happened. So I would just say, just keep visualizing. It's been great to have you on this podcast. I hope you have an excellent day with your roads. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I'm going to power it up now and just give it a give it a play. So, Thanks for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to hit subscribe and leave a comment to let us know what you think. And I will see you next time on Backstage Pass.